Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. We're glad to have you here. You'll find pew pads at the end of each aisle. If you could take them, sign your name, and pass it down the aisle so that you can greet each other by name following worship. The Stephen minister this morning is Alice O'Dwyer, and she'll be in the lobby or the narthex following worship if you wish to speak with her. We have a couple of announcements. Good morning. I'm here with two hats on this morning. The first one is as your representative to our presbytery. Uh, they would like us to sign a letter that will uh, be picked up later. I will collect them. There's a box in the fellowship hall. And we've all read the headlines about Rochester child poverty is among the highest in the nation. Rochester's concentration of poverty is also alarming. <clears throat> Students in the Rochester City Schools District score the lowest of any district on New York State tests, and the statistics are scary. But children are resist resilient, and they respond to changes in their environment. Children living in poverty who participate in quality early childhood care and education do much better than those who do not. Unfortunately, only 22% of eligible families obtain subsidies because of inadequate funding from the county, state, and federal governments. And this letter is asking for more funding for this. Today we're invited to sign an advocacy letter on these topics provided by the Children's Agenda Interfaith Collaborative. The Children's Agenda is an independent, local, nonprofit research and advocacy organization. It partners with faith communities from many different traditions from throughout Monroe County to lend the moral authority of churches, synagogues, and mosques in the call for need help for needy children in our community. Please consider signing this letter. I have a stack of them in the fellowship hall on one of the tables, and there are pens there to sign. All you need to do is sign your name and your address. I will pick them up later, and I will bring them to the organization that then is going to hand in all the letters together for a better impact. They expect to have probably between three and 5,000 of these letters signed, so we really would appreciate it. And if you see somebody come into your pew after I've said this, please inform them, and when you go out to the fellowship hall, encourage them to sign this. Thank you. Second hat. <laughs> for Habitat for Humanity, this coming spring we will be building another home. It's been three years. Hard to believe. We are starting the pie sale, the Thanksgiving pie sale, this coming Sunday. The pies this year are $16. They're the same, uh, same variety that we've had other years. If anyone here has a corporate um, interest in buying at least 25 pies, Please see me, because we have a separate thing for corporate pies, and those will be delivered in December. And I think those dates for delivery to a corporation or a company or whatever is uh, December 10th or December 17th, in time for their, to give to their employees or uh, associates. Thank you very much.
Good morning. I made a mistake. I know those of you who know me cannot hardly believe it. In fact, uh, it happens so rarely that when it happens, I tell my husband to mark it down. And he, and he said, last time I said that, though, he said, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. And I said, why? And he said, I ran out of paper. The mistake I made is this. The bookmarks for November 6th, week and a half from now, for the Cordancia concert is at 7 o'clock, not 7.30, as this says. So if you will take your pencils and make it a zero there, that would be great. And again, I make so many, rarely make a mistake that when I sent the notice in for the bulletin to Doris, I wrote 7 o'clock. She thought I made a mistake and corrected it to 7.30 for me. So it is 7 o'clock, and Cordancia is, as you well know, you know, it's, they're wonderful professionals, and it's like going to the RPO without having to pay much. It's $15, but, I mean, where can you go and have a wonderful concert for $15? See you at 7 o'clock on November 6th, Friday night. Thank you. We'll begin our worship service with the prelude. Good morning, friends. I'd like to introduce you to our world-famous guest worship leader today. He comes from us having been born in France, moved to Switzerland, trained as a lawyer, and eventually a father of the Reformation. He now resides in heaven. I'm speaking, of course, about John Calvin. Good morning, John. Good morning. 
has your morning started, John? Decently and in order. Please join us, friends, in our call to worship. O oh Lord, our sovereign, you have set your glory above the heavens. The moon and the stars you have established. What are human beings that you are mindful of them? You have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Let us worship the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God.
in the prayer of the day, friends. Your praise, praise is, is ever on our lips, O oh God. Songs of joy swell within us. We gaze at the infinite stars of creation and behold goodness. We hear of your covenant and discover righteousness. Your love is boundless, your care without limits. We enter your sanctuary to give you honor. We bow down before you with glad adoration. Receive our worship and accept our thanksgiving. You are God whom we serve evermore. Amen. This week I met a man whose name was Melchizedek. It's not very often you meet someone who has that biblical name. I don't know if his plan was to be called Mel or Zadek or Kizzy. But in the Bible, Jesus is known as a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a great high priest who was well known for his ability to declare forgiveness to people. And that is that high priest that we have of Jesus who is higher than Melchizedek. And so with that confidence, we dare to pray words like these. O God, who sent Christ to make intercession, have mercy on us as we confess our sin. He was oppressed, we afflict others. He was judged, we declare others unworthy. He was stricken, we cause others pain. But to death, we likewise destroy the innocent. Numbered with sinners, he bore our transgressions. Through Christ, make us righteous, so that in him we can obey you as Abraham did and be counted as one of your infinite stars. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace with the assurance that in Christ we are forgiven. Testament lesson today is taken from Genesis chapter 22. Now you know that Genesis has 50 chapters. What I find fascinating is that as we look at all the patriarchs and matriarchs in this beginning narrative, fully a quarter of Genesis focuses on the lives of Abraham and Sarah. And up to this point, God has already promised them a nation, moved them and nephew Lot to an entirely different land, promised them a son, burned Sodom and Gomorrah, and then ultimately given to Abraham and to Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. 
And now we pick up in our narrative a difficult story, but one that God uses in many faithful ways. I invite you to hear God's narrative to each one of us. When Abraham and his son Isaac came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar, and there he laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And God said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Then Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, Because you have done this, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of the Lord, friends. Thanks be to God. A story about a precious son. And now I have the privilege of inviting all of our precious children forward to the chancel. Come on, guys. Good morning, Benjamin. Good morning, Miss Kilmer. How are you, sweetheart? Good. Hello, Miss Tatum. How are you doing? Good. Sweetheart Cassie, how are you? Good morning, Anna. Tommy, hockey winner. By how much did you crush the other team? One point. Ooh, narrow margin. Way to go. Was it your goal? Okay. Good morning, Joshua. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, guys. Hey, Camden. Hi, Emerson. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Okay, question for you. Hands in your laps. Raise your hand if you've ever had the opportunity to dribble your hands or your toes in sand by a lake, a river, or an ocean. Raise your hand if you've ever had a chance to do that. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Sand is fascinating. You know, if you get it a little bit wet, you can make sandcastles out of it, and you can bury your parents up to their necks, and you can even observe the beautiful dunes and other things that God makes with sand, right? Benjamin, what do you want to tell me? Um, sand actually, um, it's actually crushed up rocks. It is actually crushed up rocks. Smart young man. It absolutely is crushed up rocks. And I have this question for us. You know, all of these sand grains, have you ever tried to count them? You can count the rocks, right? 
But have you ever tried to count the grains of sand or tried to count the stars in the sky that you guys can actually now see because it's getting darker earlier and earlier in the night, right? It's impossible. If we tried to count these grains of sand or the stars in the sky, we'd be here forever, wouldn't we? Well, that's exactly what God was trying to make a point to Abraham in our story for this morning. You see, God knew that Abraham had one thing that he really wanted the most. The wish of his heart was to have children or grandchildren. And so God promised that Abraham would have children and grandchildren as numerous as the stars in the sky or as grains of sand by the seashore. Now, here's the tricky part. You're listening carefully. Did Abraham have to do anything to get God's blessing? The angel says, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. Hmm. Does that mean that we have to be willing to give the thing we want most, the thing that's most precious in our heart, in order to receive God's blessing? Sort of like a quid pro quo, you give me this, I'll give you that. Does that mean we have to do that? I see some no's and I see some yeses. It's a tough question. And some people believe that we do have to give God in order to get from God. And people as wise as John Calvin have said, and this is his motto, Sincerely and completely, Lord, I offer you my heart. So this is a tough question. But listen to what else the angel of God tells Abraham. He says, By your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham did it for us. Jesus did it for us. And we get the blessing. We are Abraham's offspring. We all gain these blessings because Abraham obeyed. Now, does that mean that we get to sit back and enjoy this cheap grace and be lazy and just say, oh, God's going to bless me as much as these stars and the sand grains? Do we ignore God who gave, them all of the, gave us all of these blessings? Lots of no's. I agree with you. No. We can indeed try to count these infinite blessings, these grains of sand and the stars in the sky. We can try to count them. But more importantly, we should make our blessings count. How do we do that? How do we make our blessings count? How do we impact the lives of people around us using the gifts we've been given like our hands and our feet that can walk us places and our voices that can do kind things and say kind things? How do we use all the gifts that God have given us to bless us, bless others? Good. Good? How else do we do it, Cassie? Any other ideas? Okay, here's something to think about. When you come into the sanctuary every Sunday, have you noticed there's a tree outside the sanctuary? It's got this great little worship tone in it. And ooh, look at the cool things in it. <laughs> I've got crayons. I can do anything with crayons. I got a pencil. I got a clipboard. I can write on this. And look, my off-reading page says, draw or write down one thing you will do to help out God this week. 
Can you be the hands and feet and voice of God to use all those blessings to help somebody out this week? And the other question is, draw or write one thing you did to help God last week. Oh, I can think about the things that I did this past week to help God. Maybe I set the table for mommy and daddy. Or maybe I said a kind word to a friend. Or maybe I said to a stranger at school, Come sit with me. I've got peanut butter and jelly. Would you like to sit with me? Are there things that we can do? Yeah? Does that give you some ideas? So when you come to church, go ahead and grab the worship tote. Think about the things that you're going to do. Write them down. Bring them up here. We will bless them, okay, and share them. They're great ideas. And and here's some other ideas. Diane Brown, where are you, hon? Raise your hand and smile for me. She's already left because she's made her announcement. Mrs. Cause likes to make quilts. She says that she does this instead of taking Prozac. This is her best way of helping herself out. So she makes these quilts, and on these, this particular quilt, there are houses. And I want to give this to Mrs. Brown so she can give them to a Habitat for Humanity family. She gives from her heart... Her gifts include making quilts. So she uses her fingers to make something that can be passed on to others. So think about the things that your fingers make that you can pass on to others. And you can use those infinite sand blessings, those infinite star blessings. Good idea? Good idea? Yeah. All right, guys. So you're going to go learn about sand and the foolish man who built on sand and the strong man who built on stone. You get to hear a different way, all right? Okay. Shall we pray about it? All right, grab a hand. Grab a hand, grab an elbow. God in heaven, we give you thanks for the gifts that you give us. They are as innumerable as the stars in the heavens and the grains of sand on the seashore. Help us to use those blessings and to give them with joy, praising you. We pray this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great time in the kingdom today, friends.
Psalm 146 begins with the words, Praise the Lord. Psalm 147 begins with the phrase, Praise the Lord. So does Psalm 149, and Psalm 150 begins with, Praise the Lord. So when we read Psalm 148, you know how it starts, right? It does start, Praise the Lord. All of those psalms at the end of the book of Psalms are psalms of praise. That's why they're often sung. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his lost, his heavenly host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He fixed their bounds, which cannot be passed. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy wind, fulfilling his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes, all rulers of the earth, young men and women alike, old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his faithful For the people of Israel who are close to him. And every one of these psalms ends as it started. And you know the phrase, right? Praise Praise the Lord. Many of you know that Colleen Sweatman's email address says, Shop All Day 2001. Many of us are discriminating shoppers. We like to find a good bargain. It's important for us to find just the right thing for our loved ones. Well, I want you to think of the letter to the Hebrews as the letter for the discriminating shopper. Because this is written to individuals who are second-generation Hebrews, those who would have been the diaspora spread all around that East Asian area, and trying to figure out, is indeed God through Christ, better. Better than the God that they had been worshiping as a monotheistic entity. And so the first ten chapters of Hebrews puts forth this argument as to why God is better through Jesus. And then in chapter 11 going forward, we get the practical implications of how to live out a godly life because being a Christian has its costs and can be very difficult to give in a way that is that agape love. We pick up in our chapter here talking about the practical implications and the examples of faith going before us so that we can live out our lives of discriminating shoppers favoring Jesus Christ. I invite all of us to hear God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received the power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, God has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Jesus is indeed fairest. And thank you for giving us that fine reminder of it, the twinkling starry host that you illumine for us. You read about it this morning in the DNC. Can the news be any more dire? A 12-year-old taking its life? Wars flooding in the east, drought in the west, refugees pouring out from the Middle East, shootings in what were supposed to be safe places, schools, movie theaters, deceit and slander from civic leaders, poverty right in our midst. We have the poorest city, unending troop deployments, wars and rumors of wars. At the beginning of World War II, as England began another year of fighting against Germany, C.S. Lewis turned to a stack of mail on his desk and noticed a letter from a correspondent whose name he did not recognize. Dear Mr. Lewis, the writer began, I address you by name because, although we've never met, you cannot be a stranger after allowing me and many others to know some of your thoughts and convictions in your book, The Problem of Pain. The letter, of course, was from James Welch, the director of the BBC and their religious broadcasting service. What nobody at the time could have guessed, not even Lewis or Welch himself, is that this small letter would usher in a major turning point in the faith of the United Kingdom. You see, for the previous 15 years, Lewis had been a lecturer at Oxford's Magdalen College. He was a prolific writer and poet already, but he was a very new Christian. After coming to faith only 10 years prior, he wrote an allegory tracing his own faith journey called The Pilgrim's Regress. And in his 1940 publication, The Problem of Pain, he explored the age-old question of how, how can an all-powerful God create such a, a world with this suffering? Welch asked Lewis to present on BBC Radio a series of talks entitled The Christian Faith as I See It by a layman. And six months later, on Wednesday, August 6, 1941, Lewis boarded the train for an hour-long trip from Oxford to London. He traveled to the BBC's broadcast house for the first of a series of five talks. Each week, at precisely 7.45 in the evening, the on-the-air light would blink. And Lewis would spend the next 15 minutes speaking to a war-torn nation about humanity's relationship with one higher than itself. To the surprise of everyone, including Lewis himself, the talks touched the very heart of the nation. Lewis's clear step-by-step -step reasoning, his honest and unassuming tone, his use of common-sense examples, examples drew in listeners of all types. The BBC invited Lewis to present a second series of talks several months later, and then a third the following year, and finally a fourth in 1944. The talks were originally published as separate works, but then in 1952, they were collected into one tome and published as what the world today would know as mere Christianity. Many claim it's Lewis's greatest book. I certainly am very grateful for it because when I was trying to discern my call to ministry and what God wanted me to do, 
My pastor, Chris Price, offered me his tattered copy, marked up entirely, and I added a lot, of mar- a lot more marks of my own to it. Lewis shined a light on the mystery of faith. And it all started with a small letter. A small letter starting with praise. Well, our letter today to the Hebrews today also sheds light on the mystery of faith. Chapter 11, verse 1, defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Abraham is cited as this paragon of faith for having been willing to leave all he knew and to follow God's mysterious call, and even to willingly sacrifice his son. Now, how in the world could Abraham have done these things? Can we imagine what it would have been like to leave everything we know and go someplace utterly unknown? Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out, not knowing where he was going. Can we imagine asking our loved ones to live in tents as are the refugees from Syria, as Abraham asked Sarah to do? Can you imagine that marital conversation? Hebrews 11.9 says, By faith he stayed in a foreign land, living in tents. <coughs> Sorry, folks. <coughs> Can we imagine having a cough like that? Can we imagine having children at 100? Hebrews 11.11 says, By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren. And then, can we imagine sacrificing that miracle child? Perhaps you've read this quote from Elizabeth Stone. She said, Making the decision to have a child, it's momentous. It's to decide forever to have our hearts walking around outside of us. Our own hearts become that much more vulnerable when we decide to have children or grandchildren or even great-grandchildren, as a few of us in this congregation are privileged to do. Would we rationally do any of these things by faith? That strength of faith, which many have derisively called blind faith, seems foolhardy, unattainable, impossible, and utterly unlikely. How could we rational beings with scientific training have that kind of faith? Maybe we're thinking of faith too narrowly. You know, many of our high school students take advanced placement courses, and one of the most difficult is world history. (coughs) A recent assignment was debating whether or not the Renaissance had actually ever occurred or if it was, in fact, just a natural course of human development. As our students were preparing for this class, some asked about the Reformation and how our theologians and philosophers talked about faith. In the 17th century in the West, scientists and philosophers such as Isaac Newton and René Descartes believed that they could prove faith in God's existence 
scientifically. You might remember the Cartesian slogan of je pense, donc je suis, or I think, therefore I am. They said science was the best path to truth. The other ways of coming to truth, such as faithfully pursuing art or mysticism or ritual, including religious rituals, were downplayed. God became a scientific fact, pure and simple. So our high school students asked, what's wrong with seeing God as fact, not faith? Well, theologians from before the Renaissance, like St. Thomas Aquinas, have said that God doesn't exist like you or me or this podium. They said you couldn't say God exists because exists is just too limiting a word. Now, Aquinas is not as popular today as he was in the 13th century because we have developed a lust for unsustainable certainty. Our desire to be right, in control, and absolute know-it-alls transcends and pushes away the hope and the mere Christianity possibility of a different kind of faith. It leaves us with unsatisfactory answers to the toughest questions that people have always had. Why do bad things happen to good people? Don't we have to earn God's grace? How can I forgive somebody if they're not willing to apologize to me? They're supposed to do that first, right? Why did God let this awful thing happen to me or someone that I love? Is God punishing me? Is this relationship for which I have poured myself out past healing? Here's the thing, friends. We deceive ourselves when we think that facts and faith are contradictory. Science and religion were, in fact, once best friends. In the fourth century, St. Augustine said that if a biblical text contradicted with what we learned from science, well, believers had to find a new way to interpret the text. That was the practice right through the 17th century. Why, even at the dawn of the scientific revolution, a witty, witty Vatican cardinal said that in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is telling us how to go to heaven, not scientifically how the heavens go. In the past, people knew that science and religion had different goals. They were complementary. Science can help us diagnose and treat cancer, but it cannot touch the despair and dismay and terror we feel when we get the diagnosis. Nor can it help us to die well. For that, people turn to religion, or more specifically and broadly, to faith. The stories and beliefs that when put into practice answer our deeper questions about the more elusive, puzzling, and tragic aspects of our human predicament. John Calvin writes in his commentary about Hebrews chapter 11, We do not have faith in God from things present, but the expectation of things still to come. He goes on to say, The Spirit of God shows us hidden things, the knowledge of which we cannot reach with our senses. We're told of the resurrection of the blessed, but meantime we're involved in corruption. We're declared to be just, and sin dwells within us. We hear that we are blessed, but meantime we are overwhelmed with untold miseries. We're promised an abundance of all good things, but we're often hungry and thirsty. God proclaims that God will come to us immediately, but seems to be deaf to our cries. 
What would happen if we did not rely on our hope and if our minds did not emerge from the world out of the midst of darkness through the shining word of God in God's Holy Spirit? Faith is therefore rightly called the substance of things which are not seen and are still the objects of hope and the evidence of things not seen. You know, Calvin may have been born 506 years ago, but his wisdom transcends time. Our closing hymn today, Great God of Every Blessing, was written for the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth. Each stanza ends with Calvin's motto, Sincerely and completely, Lord, I offer you my heart. You see, Calvin believed that every thought, word, deed, and choice and action that we make is a prompt and sincere offering to God. I find it fascinating to think that we Presbyterians are known as the frozen chosen when we're inspired by Calvin, who considered how warmly and completely his devotion to God could be. It is our practices, as Calvin wanted us to do. It is our practices keeping hope alive, strengthening our patience, and reminding us that God's grace is as infinitely incandescent as the stars in the sky. It is our practices that help us to respond to the tough existential questions that we all have. It's our practices pointing to a better way when we hear of wars and rumors of wars, Republicans versus Democrats, Israelis versus Palestinians, Irish Catholics versus Loyalist Protestants, Hatfields versus McCoys, town versus village, neighbor versus neighbor. Now, our practices do not have to be these large undertakings worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize. In fact, most practices start small. Jeanette Henderson shared about one such small practice at a recent Presbyterian women's board meeting. She said that a little boy at the penny pincher sale approached her with this wooden sword in his hand, and he said, how much is this? And she said, well, normally it's 50 cents, but today, since it's half price, it's only a quarter. And clearly this little boy was going to be using his own money. So he said, wait a second, I'll be right back. And he came back and found Jeanette, and he said, here. And she said, no, 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 I don't need 50 cents. It's half price today. I only need a quarter. And he said, but I want to give the other quarter to the church. Jesus taught that if we have the faith of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. The mightiest of motions, though, friends, starts small like a seed. Did you know that there are seed vaults strategically cached in remote places around the world to preserve international crop biodiversity? These seed collections maintain global food security in the event that a disaster of any kind wipes out a crop variety. Now the doomsday vault, the granddaddy and grandmommy of all of these vaults around the world, was created in just 2008 and it's on Nor one of Norway's remote archipelagos. So I'm sorry, Bruce, I, wouldn't, I don't think you got a chance to see it while you were over there. It's built to survive rising sea levels, power outages, and other calamities that might threaten other seed vaults around the world. 
Its main storage area is kept well below freezing to preserve the contents, and it can hold 4.5 million varieties. The director of the seed vault says, yeah, there are seeds in the vault that have originated from every single country. It really is the example of true international cooperation. There are seeds sitting on the same shelf from North Korea and South Korea, and they get along just fine up there. Since the Doomsday Vault was built, there has not been a need to withdraw any of the seeds until now. And the disaster which threatens the crop, sadly, is not a natural disaster. It's human-made. The disaster is the fighting between the Syrian government, rebel groups, and ISIS, which have devastated that country. These seeds will literally preserve a way of life for countless Syrians who've been dispersed around the globe and for those who have the hope that they might eventually return home. We can never predict how our faithful actions, though they appear small and insignificant at any moment in time, will ripple outwards to affect others. It may be cold out there, friends, but you just go out to Menden Ponds Park this afternoon and you toss a pebble into one of those ponds and watch those ripples go out. Have you ever felt like I have, as if you were toiling in obscurity? Andy Warhol said we're all going to get 15 minutes of fame, but the fact of the matter is that the majority of us are called to fill much less noticeable roles in our schools, in our churches, our communities, our businesses, and even in our families. Only God knows how significant our sown seeds will become. A century and a half ago, there was a humble minister who lived and died in a very small village in England. He lived there his entire life, and he never traveled far from home. He never attended college. He didn't have formal degrees. He was a faithful village minister. In his congregation was a young cobbler. This young man went on to become one of the greatest missionaries in modern times. The village minister also had a son whose character and talents were profoundly shaped by that of his father. And this boy grew to become a widely respected preacher whose sermons influenced the decisions of statesmen. One might say that this village preacher accomplished very little in his life. There were no particular revivals, great miracles, or burgeoning membership roles. But his small faithful practices had much to do with giving India its William Carey and giving England It's Robert Hall. When we think that we are having no impact in this world, teaching a Sunday school class, providing hospitality at a church event, staying overnight for rain, donating time, talents, and treasures to any one of the outreach ministries here, or within all of the wonderful ministries that we hear about that you're doing in the city, in this state, in the nation, and around the world, when we think that we're not making a difference, Remember this little village minister and the small seeds he sowed, yielding bumper crops in two nations. Each of us, my friends, are called and equipped with a variety of gifts. Innumerable, infinite stars have variable gifts, and God calls us to share those gifts through our faithful actions. Start small, friends. And watch what God can do.
Thank you for the message, Carrie. Temple University was started with a gift from a young girl, a gift from her Sunday school class of 73 cents. With that kind of confidence, we bring our gifts to God, preparing ourselves with this prayer. We draw near your throne of grace, O God, renewed by your mercy and enlivened by your power. You have given us the gift of a Savior so that in you we live and move and have our being. Your Spirit resides with us as a source of encouragement and strength. Accept what we bring now as signs of faithfulness and bless what we do hereafter as we express our commitment. Amen. Nikki, we've been asked to pray today for Nikki Broder. Some of you are aware that she departs today for a trip to the Holy Land. That is a part of the world that is really torn, and she needs to be kept safe, and so we pray for that. Isn't it funny, Chip Bachman, that Nikki's on her way and Laura's on her way back? We give thanks and praise for all of our travels, and may they find themselves inspired. We also give thanks and praise for the beautiful flowers that Pat Miller has placed on the back table in Dee Dee Holmes. We miss your dad. And we celebrate the 63s of what would have been 63 years of marriage that you both have enjoyed. Thank you, Pat. 
We also give thanks and praise that 11 years ago this weekend, Matt and Jen Lake got married, and on the same weekend, the Hilger triplets were born. Go figure, must have been a lot of love going around that weekend. I want to thank our trustees for changing out the light bulbs in our sanctuary and indeed throughout our physical plant because, um, Bob, correct me, how many hundreds of dollars are we saving each year? Thank you very, very much for being such a great steward for us. That's okay. Much appreciated. The lights shine. Appreciate it. I also wanted to let you all know that Barbara Johnson, Earl Johnson's wife, had a hip replacement at the end of August. Some of you might have heard that she's had some complications from it that have caused Earl to do a lot more work around the house, which he lovingly has been doing. But um, Barbara's now back tending her shop a couple days a week. And Earl, of course, is doing his scholarly work on all kinds of things. He's even going to be presenting down at SBL in November. So do keep them both in your prayers. We also are in prayer for some families who have entered hospice recently. So our thoughts and prayers are with Beverly Smoker as she is aiding her husband Paul Smoker in hospice. Our thoughts and prayers are with Jean McAndrew and Carol Weber as she cares for her mother as Jean has entered hospice. Our thoughts and prayers are with Betty Phelps over at the Highlands as she continues in hospice. And our thoughts and prayers are with Connie Hodgkins and her family as Connie is at at hospice at St. Anne's Community right across from Rochester General. Please, friends, join me in prayer. God who created the infinite stars, in many and various ways you speak to your people. You call us to you using both fact and faith. We give thanks that you speak to us through Jesus Christ. We give thanks that he now sits at your right hand to intercede on our behalf when we pray. Hear us then as in his name we reach out to you. Quiet fears within us. Help us to be less self-centered. Then as we hear Christ's call to obedience, enable us to be converted by the destiny to which you call us and sent forth to follow as faithful disciples. Help us to regain a child's sense of wonder and awe for infinite incandescence and innumerable grains of sand. Teach us to marvel at you. To that end, your name be praised, so that you gain the glory. Completely and sincerely, we offer you our hearts. We pray this in the name of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Bruce, before you start, do you and James have anything cooked up for the second and third verses of this next hymn? In the interest of getting us out so that people can watch the Bills game, can we sing the first verse, please?
I know what you're thinking, friends. Carrie, where's Star in the final hymn? Sorry, I had to take a page from Bruce's playbook from last week. Listen to the end of the, last, uh, the, end of the first verse that you just sang. Our praise is but a start. <laughs> Go shine brilliantly, friends. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each and every one of us this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.